Um, if you got your Bible with you, I want you to turn over to the book of James. And while you're doing that, I want to say on behalf of Harvey Hensley and his family, uh, we thank you very much for all of you that helped prepare food and brought food uh, for uh, the after the funeral, uh, visitation and funeral of uh, Sister Louise. Uh, I want you to continue to keep them in your prayers. Um, it was something that was, you know, it, originally expected to, to happen, but uh, she took a turn for the worse and um, ended up uh, passing away last Sunday. But uh, continue to keep them in your prayers, but he said to make sure to tell the church how much he appreciates everyone uh, and their willingness to uh, minister to them. You did minister to them uh, in, a, in a special way. Um, James chapter number one, we're going to read verses 13 through 15. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we started talking about trials and how that trials were the test of spiritual growth. Uh, we defined a trial as an adverse set of circumstances either allowed or created by God for the purpose of developing us spiritually. We talked about the purpose of trials. We talked about the process of trials. We talked about the perspective of trials. And we talked about the perseverance of trials. And so when we read the first few uh, verses, actually verse 12 verses, in those 12 verses we find the purpose, uh, the process, the perspective, and the perseverance. And trials are designed and are custom made to bring out the great things that God has deposited within us. Because if you were to take away uh, all the trials that you've been through up to this point in your life, then you would not be the person that you are today. So trials have a very special role in our lives when it comes to developing us. Now, in verse 13... James transitions away from talking about trials, and he begins to talk about temptation. Trials and temptation are two completely different things. They're different in their origin. They're different in their purpose. They're, they're different in their outcome. And so in verse 13 through 15, he begins to talk about temptation, and that's what I want to share with you today and I'm calling this temptation, the battle for spiritual growth. There's a difference between trials and temptations. Trials uh, are designed to develop you. Temptation is designed to destroy you. One is to help develop you into someone that uh, is greater than what you are and what God's intended for your life. But temptation is to destroy you. Its origin is evil, and it's designed to ultimately uh, destroy your life. The Bible says Satan comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. So the origin of those two things are completely different, but both of them uh, we often experience on a regular basis. So James chapter number 1, starting at verse 13, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now look at verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lusts. In other words, temptation is triggered by something that is already existent internally. 
there's desires, there's, there's things within us that uh, entice us into temptation when an opportunity comes. It says, but when each one is tempted, when he is drawn away by his own desires or lusts, and then it says this, and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin, and sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Let's pray. Father, I ask you, Lord, that you would give revelation in our hearts concerning temptation and what you have to say to us about it in your word. I pray, Lord, that you speak clearly to us. Help me to communicate this the way that you've given it. Help me to share only what you desire for me to share and speak to all of us in this place on a personal level that, Lord, that we may be able to respond appropriately when the time of temptation comes. We thank you that you will not allow us to be tempted above our ability to endure, but you will provide a way of an escape for us when that time of temptation comes. So, Lord, help us to see clearly the things that are going on in our life, the things that are written in your word, and help us to be transformed and changed by what we hear today in Jesus' name. And everybody said? As I said, there's a difference between trials and temptation. Trials, as we mentioned earlier, was it is an adverse set of circumstances either allowed or created by God for the purpose of developing us spiritually. Now, Temptation can be defined as an opportunity to, or an invitation to do evil, to disobey, or to rebel against God in order to steal the spiritual life, stop spiritual growth, and keep our lives from bringing greater glory to God. Let me say that again. A temptation is an invitation of evil to disobey or rebel against God in order to steal the spiritual life, stop spiritual growth, and keep our lives from bringing greater glory to God. A trial is designed to develop us. Temptation is designed to destroy us. And they are different in origin, purpose, and outcome. And what we've read in James chapter 1 in verses 13 through 15 There's four different stages of temptation that I want to share with you this morning about. And if you've got an outline, I want to encourage you to take some notes and write some things down because I believe what I'm sharing this morning you'll be able to use for the rest of your life. It's important that we not just hear the Word, but that we do the Word. We're not blessed if we hear it. We're blessed if if we do it. And if we are not prepared when the opportunity for temptation comes, then we will ultimately respond negatively in that time of our life because we're vulnerable, we're not prepared, we're we're, we're not in tune with God, we don't know what to do, and oftentimes our reaction to what happens produces a more negative effect in our life than actually the event that takes place itself. So the first thing I want to talk about, or the first stage of temptation I want to talk about is desire. Here's what the Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 14. But each one is tempted and drawn away by his own desires. Now, in verse 13 and 14, 
James begins to tell us that if you're ever tempted, understand that you're not being tempted by God. God might test us. God might allow us to go through trials, but God will never tempt us to do evil. Because he says that God cannot be tempted in doing evil. Therefore, God cannot tempt us to do evil because there's nothing evil about God. So the temptation comes, according to James, from our own lusts and our own desires. In other words, there's a want to in our, in our, in our hearts, in our flesh, internally, to do the things that we don't or know that we should not do. See, the apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7, he says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, those I do. And then he goes on to say, I found out that in my flesh dwells no good thing. For every time I try to do good, evil is present. But we see that the origin of temptation is directly uh, internally, personally uh, active in our life because we live in a fallen world and we are born with a fallen nature. We are born into sin. David said that in my sin did my mother conceive me. I was shaping in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are all born sinners. And the reason that we commit sin is not because that's what we do. It's because that's what we are. And as a result of sin entering into the world, the Bible says that our sin separated us from God. The original temptation in the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis was not for Adam and Eve to go smoke a joint. It wasn't for Adam and Eve to go out and get drunk. It wasn't Adam and Eve would go out and that they would fornicate or they commit adultery or they would do something that, uh, that we would view as a big sin. But they were tempted to discredit and not believe the word of God. They questioned God's character. They disobeyed God. All disobedience is rooted in our desire to find satisfaction outside of our relationship with God. All sin is a direct action to the fact that we are not satisfied fully in God. God created us to be wholehearted. And God wants us to give ourselves wholeheartedly to God. But when we experience things in life like uh, abuse or trauma or we experience broken relationships or, or whatever it may be, what happens is the first response to those things is withdrawal. We withdraw from God. We hold part of ourselves back from God. We hold part of ourselves back from our husband or our wife or from our children. And the part of you that you withhold from God is the part of you that you will seek to satisfy yourself with something other than God. And so there's something in our fallen nature that creates a desire within us that will draw us, that will entice us into giving in to the temptation that is presented to us. It's, it's a desire. Now the word desire actually means lust. In, in other words, to desire is to lust, lust after the things that we know we should not do. It's that want to on the inside of us. Here's the truth. I want you to write this down. We cannot entertain 
our own desires. We cannot entertain our own desires. We must crucify them. We cannot entertain our own desires. We must crucify them. Now, why is that true? Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 says, They that belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its lusts and passions. Now, the crucifying of the flesh doesn't happen to you. The crucifying of the flesh happens by you. In other words, when these kind of ungodly desires begin to surface, it is your responsibility as a Christian to crucify those ungodly and unhealthy desires. You can't cast desire out of people. You can't cast sin out of people. You can't cast fleshly longings that are ungodly and inappropriate out of a person, there has to be a time when somebody comes to the place of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity that they learn how to say no. And they learn how to resist uh, the devil. They learn how to resist temptation. They, they have to grow to a place where they are strong enough that their spirit is strong enough that they're able to overcome these fleshly desires that ultimately lead to temptation. Now, the truth is this. When it comes to temptation, when it comes to the lust of the flesh, what you feed will live and what you starve will die. And the reason most people live defeated lives, the reason most people live uh, under and beneath the privilege in which God has provided us through his word is simply because they'll, they'll feed their spirit on Sunday morning and they will not do anything else the rest of the week. They feed their flesh the rest of the week. But what you feed will live and what you starve will die. And so all temptation begins within us through an ungodly or inappropriate desire. Now, here's the second thing. The second stage in this process of temptation is deception. Deception. Ungodly desires, if entertained, will ultimately lead to deception. And the only problem with deception is it's deceiving. You know, and I can't tell you how many times I have heard people try to justify sinful behavior because they, uh, uh, they, they, they feel that it's all right for them to do certain things that are strictly forbidden in Scripture. Now, let me say this up front. You are free to do anything that you want to do in life that is not directly condemned in Scripture. A lot of people just view their relationship with God or Christianity with a bunch of do's and don'ts. But if you've read the Bible, there's more do's in there than there are don'ts. And it's how you see it. It's how you view it. It's, it's how you perceive it. And, and what you have to understand is that Jesus didn't come and give his life on the cross to provide freedom for us to sin. He came, died on the cross in order to give us freedom from sin. 
We've not been given freedom to sin. Grace is not given to us so that it can enable us to continue living in sin. Jesus died to provide grace for us where we would be freed from sin and we will not walk in victory over our sinfulness until we grow spiritually in growth and maturity. But within us, all of us, we have the ability to do some really bad things. Now, that's why I don't try to get up and brag or say anything good or positive about myself. That's not me having low self-esteem. That's not me trying to put myself down. The truth is this. I know what I am capable of doing at any moment of any time in any day. For example, when me and Rachel, when we first started dating, I was sexually immoral. I really didn't think that that was such a bad thing when you come from such bad addiction in your life. I mean, I thought as long as I wasn't drinking and doing drugs, that me and God would have to be just like this. I honestly, I knew that it was wrong, but you know what? I thought it was just a little sin. If all you view your sin as is a little sin, then the only way you view Jesus as a little Savior. If you just have a little sin, you'll view Jesus as a little Savior. But something happened, took place, and I got so convicted over what I had done. I got so convicted that it was, I, I, I was physically sick. I mean, I had been sexually moral many times, and it never bothered me before, but for some reason, this was different. And I looked at that person, I said, you know what, this is wrong. This, this is wrong. She probably thought I was, you know, you know had a mental breakdown or something. But, you know, I said, this is wrong. And long story short, I cut off that relationship, and I told God, I said, God, I said, I want to live for you the rest of my life, and I don't want to do anything that's displeasing to you. So right now, I make a commitment to you that I will not date anybody or do anything with anyone until you say it's okay. Now, you got to be careful what you say to God if you don't mean it. you got to be careful. Well, a few years went by, and I thought that I had reached a place of consecration to God that I had fulfilled my vows and that, you know, God, I've proven to you that I love you more than anything or anybody, but is it a good time now for me to start dating? He went, "Uh uh-uh. He made it perfectly clear. And and I said, all right. Well, eventually, you know, Rachel started coming to our church. You know how church folks are. They try to get you fixed up and stuff like that. They said, oh, Rachel likes you. And I said, oh, I can't blame her. But, uh, I mean... (laughs) But, you know, uh, we, we were, you know, in church services together. We, you know, uh, we never did that. But she, she actually, I've told this story before in a different way, but, but she actually asked me to go to a ball game with her. In other words, she asked me, I can't blame her, but I looked at her and I said, I can't. And I kind of felt bad about it because I didn't want her to think that I didn't think she was pretty enough or godly enough or good enough for me. I didn't want to be holier than thou. Well, some time went on, and, and she looked, and she said, you know what? would you like to go to Pizza Hut with me? That's not a big deal. I mean, it's, a, it's not a big deal unless you told God you wouldn't do it. That's what God told Adam and Eve. He said, out of all the trees in the garden, 
You can have anything that's on them, but the two trees that are in the midst of the garden, you better stay away from. Well, I finally, I told her, I said, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. And I said, let me just clear the air with you. Because I really, I was feeling bad. And I said to her, I said, I don't want you to think that you're not good enough or godly enough or holy enough for me. I said, it's got nothing to do with you and everything to do with me. I said, being in the center of God's will and doing what God has called me to do is the most important thing in my life. And if there's one thing that would get me out of the will of God, it would be getting involved in the wrong relationship. Now, how's, how do I know that's true? Well, the strongest man in the Bible the wisest man in the Bible, and the man that God himself said had a heart after his, didn't have drug problems, but they got hooked up with the wrong relationships. And guess what? There was devastating consequences as a result of it. So I just cleared the air with her. And you know what I think? I believe that mayor liked me more. I don't blame her for that. But my point in saying that is, I wanted to be honest and upfront with her about who I am and my past and what I'm capable of doing. And I did not want to do any of those things with her and dishonor God and dishonor her. Listen, I don't think any of us have a relationship with God as close as King David did. And if he is capable of committing moral failure, I can promise you nobody in this building, including myself, is above it. So we just need to be self-honest and do some real self-examination and, and be transparent. So, you know, how many of you, and I, I use this example as, as well, you know, Matthew 6.33 says, Seek God first and his righteousness, and all the other things shall be added unto you. Now listen, that verse of Scripture is not a theory for me. I'm not preaching this Scripture out of hope. I have put that to the test. Because how many of you uh, know that, or know of an example of somebody who looked the right thing in the eye told them no twice, and will be married 19 years, September the 9th, uh, 2019. I put that to the test. I put God to the test. I put God first. Now, here's my point. A Christian that doesn't make God their top priority is the devil's favorite Christian. If God is not first in your life, you're the devil's favorite Christian. And don't think that, look, that you can straddle the fence and have one foot in the world doing your own thing, one foot in the church, you know, trying to blend in and think it's going to turn out all right. Let me know how that works out for you. So it has desire. It begins with desire, then it leads to deception. It says here in verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. Now here's the word, and enticed. So we're seeing a progression or different stages of what happens as temptation is brought into the light in our lives. 
the way temptation progresses is once desire is conceived, desire is now mixed with deception. That's why James wrote, and is enticed. Now, what does that word enticed mean? It means to seduce, to provoke, to lead astray, to entice to do wrong by promising pleasure or gain, to draw into danger, evil, or difficulty through the attracting and deceiving, the presenting of an attraction so strong that it overcomes the restraints of conscience or better judgment. Write this down. Sin always fascinates before it assassinates. Sin always fascinates until it assassinates. In other words, you have to come to a point that you override your conscience and tell yourself, if I just do this one time, it can't be all that bad. I mean, every time, if you're a Christian, every time you sin, you do it with the full knowledge that what you've done is wrong. Now, the word conscience means con with, and the word uh, science means knowledge. So every time you override your conscience, you are sinning with full knowledge that what you're doing is wrong. How many understands what I'm talking about? So desire leads to deception. If you flirt with deception, you will ultimately end up crossing the line into disobedience. If you flirt with deception, you will ultimately end up crossing the line into disobedience. And that's the third stage. The third stage is disobedience. The third stage is Disobedience. Look what it says here in verse 15. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Once we're tempted by our own desires, and then we entertain those desires, those desires lead us into deception. And in, once we're into deception, we will ultimately be led into disobedience. In other words, what we need to understand is that if we entertain or flirt with desire and deception, it will ultimately lead into action. And listen, all this stuff can happen in just like a, like a, you know, like a snap of a finger. How many of you, you've struggled with this? Don't raise your hand. But you've literally, you've struggled with an habitual sin. Now, you love Jesus, and, 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 you, know, and, and you want to live for him, but there's areas in your life that you find yourself sinning over and over again habitually, and ultimately you know what happens in order to trigger that, but you allow yourself or you talk yourself into entertaining, whether it's pornography, where you look at some images. You know, it may start with just an innocent program on television. But what happens is, you know, when you have that desire within you, even an innocent program on television can stir something up inside of you that's laying there that if you have not crucified it, 
it will allow you to let your mind wander into a place that God doesn't want you to be in. I want to say this. It's not a sin to be tempted, okay? Jesus himself was tempted, right? Yet he was without sin. He did not commit sin. So it's not a sin to be tempted. As a matter of fact, if you really look at it, temptation is just as much an opportunity to do the right thing as it is to do the wrong thing. What determines that is your character, and character is the result of spiritual maturity. So the longer I live and the longer I serve Jesus, the less I pay attention to what people say and the more I watch what they do. Because it's easy to say all the right things, but the question is this, who are you in secret? Who are you when nobody else is around? What would you be willing to do if you knew nobody would find out? You with me? Is it, does, can anybody relate to this? Just me. Am I just the only one that's messed up in here? Listen, I've been in church long enough to know how to do this thing, and that's dangerous. But I found out, listen, lying to yourself, still lying. Now, here, here, here's another point I want to make. Temptation only becomes a sin when our will is engaged and we respond to it. Jesus said this, whoever looks after a woman or looks at a woman and lusts in his what? Heart. Notice sin, he said, is guilty of, of adultery. Notice the sin was not the result of what he saw in his eyes. In other words, the first look isn't sin, but the second look is. The first look caught his eyes. The second look got his heart. And you need to be able to define that because there's a lot of people that, that feel condemned because when they have a thought that they, they, they have a thought in their mind of somebody being attractive, they think that they have, that they've committed sin and they've lust. Listen, God is not going to kill all of the good looking people so you can stay saved. I thank God my wife is beautiful. But she's mine. Right? And I'm hers. And so what we have to understand is, look, if, if you allow what's being entertained in your head to be transferred in your heart, it's just as much sin as if you were caught in the act. Now, that's pretty hardcore, right? Now, which of us have not been guilty of lusting after someone? That's what I thought. But we have to define it. We, we can't give in to it. So Jesus said that when we look and then we lust in our heart, that's when we are guilty. And so James says this, temptation will give birth to something, and that something is sin. Having a little bit of sin in your life is like being a little bit pregnant. Having a little bit of sin in your life is like being a little bit pregnant, you know, Initially, when you find out you're pregnant, you may not see any visible outward changes, but just give it a little bit of time. 
And then those changes begin to take place. Moses wrote in the book of Numbers, chapter 32, verse 23, be sure and know your sin will find you out. Some of you think that you have got all this stuff hidden in your life. And God says, you're a fool. And if you've got hidden sin in your life, let me encourage you to find you an altar and repent. Why? Because Jesus, not Donald, Jesus said, whatever was done in secret shall be brought into the light. See, when you've got sin in your life, the only two options you've got is humility or humiliation. The only two options you've got is humility or humiliation. Because the scripture says when sin is conceived, it will ultimately produce an outcome. It will ultimately reproduce and progress until it becomes something that is visible. And when we're walking in uh, our, after our own fleshly desires, when we're walking in self-deception, and when we are habitually and intentionally doing what we know is disobedience to God's word, there's only one outcome that's going to see itself through. And that's the fourth thing. The fourth thing is death. Death. Have you ever noticed that 10 out of 10 people die? That the mortality rate's hovering right around 100%. You want to know why? Because we are all born sinners. And listen, there's no good sinners in heaven, and there's no bad sinners in heaven. And let me say this and throw this out here. Listen, don't judge somebody else just because they sin differently than you. It's quiet up in here this morning. I'm glad I'm not taking up an offering after this message. But we're born sinners, and what do sinners do? Sinners commit sin. Sin is not just something you do. Sin is the result of who you are. And in our nature, that's who we are. And Jesus came not only to die on the cross to forgive us of our sin, but to set us free from the power of sin. But that ultimately won't happen until we're with him forever. Listen, nobody can embrace sin and live a life that brings glory to God. I know that you want to bring glory to God. If you're a Christian, there's a legitimate desire within you to want to bring glory to God. But do you desire to give up your sin so that you can bring glory to God? Or, and, and I don't understand this, there's a lot of people in the church that they want to live as close to hell as they can and still make it to heaven. I mean, they want to give, you know, we sing here something, I surrender all. We need to stop lying. We need to say, I surrender some. I surrender a little bit. I surrender this one thing. I surrender But see, the Christian life is 
There's a moment when you surrender everything to God, and then there's a moment-by-moment surrendering of your life for the rest of your life. Repentance is not a one-time thing. Surrender is not a one-time thing. It is an everyday thing in our life that we operate in and we allow ourselves to be cleansed on a regular basis because it's, it's in there. Just because we're saved doesn't mean our flesh gets saved. The last thing is this. It says in verse 15, Then when desire has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So, go to the next slide for me. Here's the process. No, go back. I thought that I had it on there, but I don't. The process is this. Is it up there now? There, yeah. Here's the progression of temptation. We first have a desire, and then that desire leads to deception, and then that deception then leads to disobedience, and then that disobedience leads to death. I mean, that's what James says. And the reason temptation is so deadly and destructive is because temptation will lead us to sin if we give in to it, and sin has the power to reproduce itself over and over and over and over and over and over and over again until it comes to the point to where we are consumed by it. Paul wrote in Romans 6, he says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Ezekiel 18, 20, it says, the soul that sins, it shall die. Now listen, when you sin, you don't just drop dead of a heart attack. How many knows that? There were a few occasions when people sinned in the scripture where they did drop dead. That happened. But when we sin, we can all testify to this, when we sin and we all have sinned, we didn't drop dead of a heart attack. When God told Adam and Eve, he said, the day you eat this fruit, you shall surely die. When they ate the fruit, they didn't drop dead, but they did lose fellowship with God. If your desire is not greater for God than it is for the pleasure of sin, you're in danger of becoming backslidden and lukewarm. If the desire you have for Jesus is not continually being reignited and set on fire, if you're not more on fire and committed to Jesus today than you were five years ago, then let me tell you something, that's called backsliding. You don't backslide overnight You start from the altar to the front row to the middle row to the back row to the foyer to the welcome desk, out the door, in the house, and it progresses over and over again until you find out that, you know what, I haven't been in church for a year. My question is this, what kind of habits do you have in your life that have led you away, farther away from God? Not everything that leads you farther away from God is a bad thing or a sinful thing. Now, how do I know that's true? Because the Bible said in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, let us lay aside every weight and sin. There's some things that are just weights, some things that are just uh, heavy, some things that are just distractions, some things that are just, you know, 
tolerated in our life that ultimately keeps us from running the race. Let me ask you, do you have any of those things? I can go ahead and come to music. Do you have anything in your life that is causing you to drift away from Jesus? The consequences of yielding to temptation is that it leads to sin. And the result of sin is that we lose fellowship with God. And repentance is not just important for the lost, repentance is also important for believers. It's not just a one-time thing. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sin, then he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. If we walk in the light and he, he's in the light, then we have fellowship with him and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. You will never forsake a sin that you don't hate. You will tolerate it. You will play with it. You will entertain it. But you think in the back of your mind, I can handle this. It's just not that big a deal. If that's really the way that you view this, then you've already crossed the line. And you need to confess your sin. Can I say that and it not offend you? I'm going to say it anyways. Because I didn't write it. I said it with a smile. But when's the last time some of you came to an altar and just simply repented for the things that have kept you away from God? Remember when you first got saved? Man, everything was a joy. Everything was beautiful. The sky was bluer, the grass was greener. You loved everybody. Wasn't a chore for you to come to church? It was a privilege to serve in the ministry. Remember when it was like that? Paul told the church of Galatia, he said, you ran well, what hindered you? And some of you, you know you're not where you need to be with God. My question is, what's hindering you? And if you've lost that desire for Him, you need to be awakened in your heart that you are in dangerous, dangerous territory. Because we think that when God sends judgment or allows judgment to take place, that it's going to be some kind of apocalyptic event. But as you've heard Clay say over and over again, sometimes the judgment of God is simply God giving us over to our own sin. I mean, could you imagine living your whole life believing that you're right with God and then stand before you and he said, not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of, my heaven, of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. For many, not a few, he said, many shall say to me in that day, Lord, did we not work miracles in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not lay hands on the sick? They were, did we not do all of these things? He said, depart from me. I never knew you. Listen, evil is a person. It's not a thing. 
Satan is evil. It's very important that you understand that sin's advertised price is always lower than its actual cost. Sin's advertised price is always lower than its actual cost. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Why? Because it progresses and it reproduces. You can throw that last slide up there for me. You can put that down in your notes. I'm not going to cover that. Maybe if time permits another message, I may share on those things. But I feel like God's given me what He wanted me to share. Here's what the Scripture says. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's no temptation except which is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you above that which you are able but with the temptation will make a way of escape for you that you might be able to bear it. No matter what kind of compromising situation that you find yourself in, the scripture says God is faithful that he will make a way of escape. That's God's part. God will make a way of escape, but you have to take the way of escape. He won't do that for you. He won't keep you. You have your own will. He's allowed you to make your own decisions. But even in your mess, He will say, here's the way out. And I feel like that's what God is saying to some of us this morning, is that I come today to give you a way out of what you're in. But you can't get out of what you're in until you acknowledge that you are in it whatever that may be. That means you got to be honest with yourself. you got to be honest with God. You have to examine your own heart. And listen, don't play with your soul. Don't play with eternity. Don't play with heaven and hell. Listen, if heaven and hell are real, then what happens in this place right now is extremely important. Because one day we'll be thrust out into that eternity. For those that die lost, God said, listen, I provided a way for you. Actually, I provided a way for the whole world. But you rejected it. You played games with it. You did all the right things with the wrong heart. And now it's too late. See, it's too late to repent of our sins once we die. Because it says it's appointed once for a man to die, then comes the judgment. If you were to die today, God forbid, and you were to stand before God on judgment day, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? Are you lost or are you saved? The cross makes an equal playing ground for all of humanity, regardless of race, regardless of of ethnicity, regardless of sexuality, regardless of anything that we may say that defines us or makes us different from everybody else. The only thing, the only two people that exist in view of the cross are those that are saved and those that are lost. The question is, which side are you on? Stand with me. 
How many of you, and don't lift your hands, I'm not wanting you to tell on yourself, I can't do anything for you anyways. But how many of you, you're living in blatant sin right now and you know it? How many of you have entertained your own desires? You've flirted with deception. You've embraced sin and you're spiritually dead. So if you're here this morning and you're lost, God's word to you is repent. Turn from your sin and turn toward the Savior and be forgiven. If you're here, you're a Christian, but you have sin in your life and God's saying it's right there and he's putting his finger on it. He's saying this right here needs to go. Then what God's saying to you is confess. To the lost person is repent. To the saved person is confess. Because he said if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And now we have fellowship because we're able to walk in the light as he's in the light. Because there's no darkness in him. As they sing and as they play, this altar is open for you. And if God's dealing with you, I will encourage you, respond.